Blessed Lord, since you have caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant that we would so hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, so that by patience and comfort of your holy word, we would embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given to us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. We'll grab your Bibles if you need one. There should be one around you uh, in the pew or the chair in front of you or next to you. But grab that Bible, put it in your hand, and lift it up high, and repeat after me. This is my Bible. Jesus is who it says he is. I am what it says I am. I can do what it says I can do. Today I will be taught the Word of God. My mind is alert. By God's grace, my heart is receptive. The Bible is the incorruptible, indestructible, ever-living Word of God. My encounter with the Bible today will transform and grow my faith. We say together, in Jesus' name, amen. When I open up your Bibles, we're going to be in Luke chapter 1, uh, and kind of where we've been in the previous uh, few classes or times together. Uh, again, the whole point of Mosaic is putting together the image of Jesus as is given to us in the four Gospels, but doing so from a distinctly first-century Galilean, Eastern, Hebraic perspective, looking at the Bible the way they looked at the Bible then, trying to study it the way they studied it, uh, being taught the lessons that they were taught. And so we began in John's Gospel uh, all the way back in the primordial times, right, uh, and where there was this logos, this memra, this diver, this word. Uh, and then we've been moving with that, and as John describes, eventually that, that word, that thought of God becomes flesh, right? Uh, and so when we got to that point of incarnation, the fleshly nature, uh, we flipped over to Luke, uh, in chapter 1, so we could still look at what Luke has to say about what kind of came before the birth of Jesus. And we uh, spent some time there last week, and that's where we're going to be uh, this week as well. So we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 1, and we're going to be looking at verses uh, 11 and 12. So if you'll read with me what's up on the screen, we read together. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing to the right of the incense of altar. Zechariah saw this and was alarmed, and terror fell upon him. Now, some of the context for this verse comes from our previous teaching, where we have Zechariah, uh, a priest in the order of Abijah, right? And we went on that hyperlink excursion of what, uh, knowing that he was in the order of Abijah, uh, what that meant and how that even gave us the timing of Jesus' birth. And so it's now describing Zechariah, a high priest, uh, who's in his service in the, in the, the temple as priest. Uh, there an angel appears to him, and it says, standing to the right of the incense of altar. 
So part of what I like to do as uh, we go through these teachings is I like to pepper it with insights, with tools for your toolbox that will help you not only uh, in that day's teaching, but will help you whenever you're reading and studying the Bible. Uh, and so never, never overlook small details, especially when you're with an author like Luke who's writing at that Rimes style where every word is just pregnant with meaning and detail. And so the fact that the angel appeared on the right or the north it's really uh, the biblical way of saying the north side of the altar. It's important to note that the right side uh, is indicating an auspicious sign. Uh, that's why Luke is noting it, and as we're going to see in just a minute, it finds parallels in other writings, including in the first century, that uh, when an angel appears to someone in the temple, gives them this vision, uh, it's coming from this north side, this right side. It's an auspicious sign. And in the temple, the priests slaughtered the holiest of the sacrifices to the north of the altar of the burnt offering. And so Luke, by referring to the right side of the altar, indicates that the angel stepped out from behind the veil. That's just kind of the logistics and the geography and the breakdown of how the temple worked and where the Holy of Holies was, where the veil was, where the north side was. And so a person exiting the Holy of Holies could only do so through the partition in the veil on the north side. Now, a guy named Josephus. Josephus, you might want to write that down if you're a note taker. He's going to be so important to us over the next uh, several months, uh, years as we look at Jesus' life. Josephus, J-O-S-E-P-H-E-S-U-S. -E -E Josephus lived in the first century. And Josephus was a Jew. He was of priestly lineage. But Josephus also kind of, uh, depending on which side of the, the sticks you fall on here, sold out to the Roman Empire. And he became kind of a historian for the Roman Empire about the Jewish people. Um, but he also wrote lots of annals and lots of details about the history of the Jewish people. And again, this is in the first century. In fact, it's contemporary with Jesus, the apostles. Josephus even writes about John the Baptist and even, even mentions John by name. All right, so he's living at the same time, writing about the same kind of period. And so he helps us understand the culture, the context of the Gospels. And Josephus actually relates an incident that is eerily similar to what Luke records, but for Josephus, it's in the days of the Hasmoneans, and an individual named John Hyrcanus received a message from God in the form of an audible voice as he too was in the temple offering the incense. In Zechariah's day, this story would have circulated widely and been known among the people and the priesthood. And I just want to recount that story for you to kind of set Luke's gospel in historic context. This is from Josephus's Antiquities. He says, An outstanding story is told regarding this high priest, Hyrcanus, and how God came to speak with him. They say that on the very same day on which his sons fought with Antiochus, he went alone into the temple, serving as high priest and offering incense, and he heard a voice declare that his sons had just then prevailed in battle over Antiochus. As soon as he came out of the temple, he announced this to the entire multitude, and it proved true according to the prediction. 
So, in other words, in, in Luke's time, in the time of the apostles, in the time of Zechariah, what had happened to Zechariah would have been something that would have been familiar to them. It wouldn't have been so out of the ordinary. It would have been out of the ordinary, but not something that they would not have experienced or at least heard about in stories from their parents. And when we read through the Bible, we see that angels have a habit of suddenly appearing and startling people. Now, angels, uh, the Greek word angelos, or the Hebrew word malik, uh, does not necessarily have to refer to a spiritual being. You don't always have to think of cute, chubby babies with wings flying above or winged, uh, slimmed figures with Roman togas flying. Uh, angelos, malik, really means messenger. And so this could be of that sort, of the heavenly being sort, by all means it could be, but it also could be by means of a human being. Uh, Anyone who brings a message from God is considered an angel, according to the scriptures. And so these angels just have a way of kind of appearing out of nowhere. And we can even have that experience in our own life if we have the eyes to see it. When we have those experiences where someone unexplained just appears in our life and gives us exactly what we need from the Lord at that moment, uh, this would be like the book of Hebrews. Never underestimate the fact that you may have entertained angels unaware. Uh, And it doesn't necessarily, again, mean that they weren't human flesh and blood, but they were bringing you a message from God. But they, they tend to come in unexpected ways, at unexpected times, through unexpected people or experiences. And so the people are often left stunned or confused or terrified. I don't really like the translations of terrified. It kind of means um, overwhelmed in such a way that you lack the words to express it. But the angel says this to Zechariah, and let's, let's read that together from verse 13. He says, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. So we get a lot of information in that verse as well. The fact that the angel says your petition has been heard lets us know what was Zechariah doing while he was offering incense, while he had the opportunity to be in the Holy of Holies and have this incredibly close access to God Almighty. What did he take advantage of that time to do? How did he redeem that time? He obviously was praying, right? If his pleas was answered, he was obviously pleading. Uh, And so it's been heard. And your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. Uh, So the heavenly message seems, again, to imply that Zechariah is kind of having this private audience with God. But again, this has some practical applications for you and I, that while we may not be in the order of Abijah, while we may not be serving in the temple in Jerusalem, there are many times where we are serving our Lord or we're serving our, human, our fellow human being or we're just at our job like Zechariah was. We can redeem that time. Right? We can redeem that time by lifting up thoughts in prayer, by being in prayer, by, uh, as Paul would try to encourage us, pray without ceasing. That is, no matter what we're doing or how we're doing or what we're engaged in, we are somehow making an intentional connection with God, recognizing that God is present there. And so uh, Zechariah believes that this God who, who gives life uh, to the dead, 
can call into being that which also doesn't exist. He believes God created the world ex nihilo, out of nothing. So he certainly believes that God can take this dead womb, this barren womb, this empty womb, this nothingness of Elizabeth, and can certainly give a son. And so with hope against hope, he believes, and he becomes a father. Now, I want to give you a little bit of structure on the Gospel of Luke, but also this is kind of, again, another tool for your toolbox because it's not only in this specific instance in Luke that this occurs. It occurs at a much bigger level in Luke, but this actually occurs in every book of the Bible, all 66 books from Genesis to Revelation, and that is what's known as a menorah structure. Uh, The menorah in the temple had seven uh, arms on it, seven lights, uh, and that, that, that menorah kind of represented the light of God, the light in this world, uh, the being enlightened by God uh, in our mind. And so the biblical authors, whatever they wrote, intentionally wrote with kind of the structure of their material, whether it was written or whether it was preached. Because even when I, I preach and even when I anticipate that my communication is going to be almost exclusively oral, I still think through it and I still think through a structure. And the menorah or the sevenfold structure is, is a big idea uh, throughout the Bible. And one place it occurs in Luke is with oracles. So there are seven oracles that occur in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, what will be important for you, and I wouldn't be a good teacher of the first century mindset if I didn't give you things without telling you the answer or even telling you how to get the answer but just telling you, where you what answer you need to go in search of. Why would Luke give seven oracles? Why would he choose to break his gospel in this early section, these opening chapters, to center them around seven oracles? And for that, you can look at the structure of the menorah and how it's lit, what that center structure would be, therefore what that center uh, oracle here would be, the Magnificat, why that's the center in which everything revolves around. Luke's doing all kinds of wonderful, wonderful literary things. And right now, since we're early on in Mosaic, I'm just throwing these things out to you but take note of them. Get your notebooks out, write it down, because somewhere along the line, it may be March of 2023, but somewhere along the line, I'm going to go, remember those seven oracles. Remember that menorah structure, and you're going to go, oh, yeah, 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 I got that in my notes, and you're going to flip back uh, and review some of your research. So we have the first oracle is this Annunciation of John. So let's read that Annunciation together again. We've already read uh, it, but let's read it together. Verse 13. Do not fear, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and Elizabeth, your wife, will bear you a son, and you will call his name John. So the angel delivers this message in the form of a a prophetic oracle um, that's really cast in a very... Uh, Semitic, very Eastern, very Jewish way, um, uh, parallelism uh, within this menorah structure. 
The angel would have no doubt spoken in Hebrew, after all. Uh, he is in the temple of the Jewish people. He's speaking to the high priest doing high priestly service. Uh, it's the holy tongue. It's the tongue of the angels. Uh, and so there's actually, when you translate what's going on in Luke 1, verse 13, into Hebrew, there's a wordplay going on. It's a wordplay we don't catch in English, but is very much there in the Hebrew uh, in, in classic Hebraic poetry style. Uh, some of the creative wordplay and ornament goes throughout the Gospel of Luke. Uh, there was uh, an individual who's actually a, a Baptist pastor. And in the 1980s, he moved to Israel, and he, he loved the Jewish people, and he loved the Hebrew language. And he decided that he would translate the Gospels into Hebrew, but he would do it on a very literal word-for-word -word basis. And the interesting thing that he found when he did that was the Torah, the book of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, each week is read in the synagogue. But it's not read. It's more, more so it's sung or what we would call chanted. And it has specific melodies, just like we sang those songs, you know, Waymaker and Lion and the Lamb. It has a specific melody, right? Well, the Torah was sung or chanted to specific melodies, and they were broken up into divisions. And what this uh, pastor scholar discovered was the Greek of the New Testament sometimes is horrible Greek. It really is. But if you translate it word for word into Hebrew, it makes gorgeous, perfect biblical Hebrew. And then further, he discovered that he could break the Gospels up into the same number of divisions as the Torah, and that each division could be sung to the same melody. Now, what do you think the chances are that if I translate, if Genesis 1, chapter 1 through Genesis chapter 3, verse 20, are sung to the tune of Amazing Grace... What are the chances that if I translate Luke chapter 1 and 2 into Hebrew, that it miraculously also can be sung without any modification to the tune of Amazing Grace? And not only did it happen there, but it happened 54 more times. What would you begin to think? Ah, there's some kind of connection, right? And so Luke writes in a beautiful uh, Hebraic poetry prose here. And one of the word plays he does is with John's name. So John's name in Hebrew is Yochanan. Yochanan. And Yochanan can mean like God is gracious or God has been gracious or God will be gracious or gracious God. But that's kind of the, the deeper meaning of the name Yochanan. But it's built off the Hebrew word uh, takina, right? That's its root word. That's uh, the word in the dictionary from which when it gets parsed and used in different ways, uh, yokanan comes from takina. And so when we translate uh, Luke 1.13 into Hebrew, it reads like this. Fear not, Zechariah, for heard is your takina, and your wife Elizabeth shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Yochanan. And so there you have this parallelism and you have the playing on of words, the two related words. We may not can see how they're related in English. They're related, though, uh, in Hebrew. And the prophetic announcement continues with similar language and flourishing, make when frequent allusions 
to the prophecies and the writings of the Hebrew Scriptures, what we call the Old Testament. Uh, That's another thing to, to tuck away in your notes that we've already hit on, and that's the idea that the Gospels, I don't think I would actually be exaggerating. People think I'm exaggerating when I'm about to make this statement. I'm not exaggerating. I'm really not exaggerating. I've spent the better part of three decades of my life, like, outlining this and and demonstrating this. Every word of the Gospels comes from somewhere in your Old Testament. It's either a direct quote. When it's a direct quote, it's great because it's really easy to catch. But more often, it's an allusion. It's a reference It's some kind of way of drawing you back into a story in the Old Testament. And this is because the gospel writers are trying to demonstrate for you in a very concrete way the fact that this word, this mind, this memrah, this deber, this logos, this creative force of God really did become flesh. And that the word itself, the very word of God, really did become flesh, so that everything you find written in your Old Testament really did find a way out in the flesh, in the real 3D life living of Jesus of Nazareth. And so everything, everything the Gospels tell you is taking you back to somewhere in the Old Testament to show you that Christ is in it all, that Christ has always been always been God's plan. This crimson thread of redemption has always been unfolding exactly the way it's supposed to have unfolded. And so we're going to see a couple of snippets of that now. I'm hoping on your own, because again, I'm trying to teach you as a first century Galilean rabbi, I'm hoping I drop enough hints for you where you in your own mind and you maybe in your own notes go, oh yeah, but wouldn't this also count? Wouldn't that also count? And the answer is, yeah, yeah, absolutely, it would. But I'm going to give you a few uh, to wet your whistle and to get you kind of started, all right? So let's look at uh, verses 14 and 15 of Luke 1. Let's read this together. This, uh, again, in, in the message, uh, the oracle coming to Zechariah about uh, their son, his and Elizabeth's son, um, John the Baptist. This is what he says of him. We read together. He will be to you a joy and delight, and many will rejoice in his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. He is not to drink wine or an intoxicating beverage. So John the Baptist, that's who's being talked about here, is going to bring joy and delight to Zechariah. Now, here's the homework for you for those who are so inclined and, and, and want uh, something in the week to keep them busy and occupied and maybe sometimes downright aggravated. Joy and delight, right? Every word, joy and delight. Find where joy and delight's in the Old Testament. Find where that's used. That's a, that's a nice phrase, right? Luke is incorporating that. The angel is incorporating that into the message to incorporate that into the story of who John the Baptist is. So it's with joy and delight. Many are going to rejoice at his birth. So in your mind, again, everything in the Gospels is really uh, an unfolding, an unfleshing, a filling full of the Old Testament. Are there any other births in the Old Testament that people rejoiced at? Well, actually, yeah, right? There's, there's quite a few. We'll look at maybe one or two. Uh, and so here we have our connection to the Old Testament through allusion, 
or what can be called uh, in a scholarly way, intertextuality. Uh, another way to put it, the way I prefer, is verbal tallies, connecting these very important words and phrases. But the angel touches on several birth stories in the Old Testament right there in verses 14 through 15. First, the angel is alluding to the birth of Isaac. And we've already encountered Abraham and Isaac in their story already. But once again, that story is being invoked. And so if you really want to unpack the meaning of Luke 1, 14 and 15, or up to this point in Luke 1, you need to go back and read the story of Abraham and Isaac because the story of Abraham and Isaac is informing this story. The son of Abraham's old age and uh, the Jewish legends of the time uh, tell of how the Gentiles marveled and that the Gentiles rejoiced at the birth of Isaac, of whom Sarah said, and this is quoting Genesis 21, beginning in the sixth verse, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh with me. Who would have ever said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children, yet I have borne him a son in his old age. And of course, there, Sarah's saying people are going to laugh when they hear she's going to give birth to a son because she's conceiving in her old age, right? And what do you have with the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth? The same kind of scenario. And Isaac's name in Hebrew is Yitzchik. Yitzchik. It often is taught that Yitzchik means laughter in Hebrew. Uh, and that's why Sarah is doing a wordplay. People will laugh when they hear. Uh, and they could either laugh, one, in joy uh, and happiness, but they could also laugh kind of in snickering the way Hagar and Ishmael would do about Isaac. But Yitzchik doesn't necessarily mean laughter per se. It's what is, I think the fancy word is onomatopoeia. Is that where a word sounds like it's meaning, right? So if I go, right? Um, however we spell that, it's really not a word, but the sound describes its meaning. So Yitzik, if you say Yitzik several times in a row, this is what you get. Yit, 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 yit. So that's his name. It's, it's literally the sound of laughter, not a biblical definition for laughter. It's literally the sound. It'd be like naming some, which, by the way, I think there is an NFL player named Ha Ha Hicks, right? Ha Ha, right? There is an NFL player named Ha Ha. It'd be like naming your kid Ha Ha, right? That's what Yitzhak is. That's what Isaac is. And she's playing off of this word laughter. But Luke is wanting to invoke it, again, because of the idea that Zechariah and Elizabeth have this similar connection with Abraham and Sarah. But not just because they conceived in old age, uh, which is partly because of it. That's the obvious one. That's the one that gets us there. But also when we begin to look at the culture of Zechariah's time, we know that the teachings of the Jewish people taught that the not just Abraham's family, but the nations around him, in, in other words, the world, rejoiced at the birth of Isaac because they too understood that Isaac was going to be bringing, uh, bringing this great, great redemption, this great thing, this gift to the whole world. And so now you have John the Baptist uh, kind of here, not Jesus being in the place of Isaac, which we can do, but John the Baptist being this child that's born where people will have this great uh, joy uh, and delight. 
Because, after all, John is going to be the harbinger of redemption. The joy and delight brought by John's birth is none other than the good news of the Messiah. And so the angel predicts that John will be great in the eyes of the Lord, that he's not to drink wine or strong drink, but instead the Lord sets him apart with what's known as a Nazarite vow, which is covered in the book of Leviticus. A Nazarite vow, but his is even more strict because... Most Nazarite vows where you vow not to have fruit of the vine, that is, you, you vow not to, to, to drink a strong drink, you vow not to cut your fingernails, you vow not to cut your hair, uh, you make certain vows for a period of time, uh, and then when you break that vow, you'll cut your nails and uh, cut your hair and, and so forth. But there is a stricter version where you don't get to make that choice for yourself, but you're set apart from the womb. Now, can you think of anyone else in the Bible, the Old Testament, who was a Nazarite from the womb? Big, strong guy, right? Samson. So, what is the angel, that, and also what is the author, Luke, doing from a literary perspective for us? He's now invoking the story of Samson. All right, And so, if you want to be a good, diligent, first-century Galilean disciple, you're not content just to know that little bit of information. Instead, you want to go, why in the world is that being invoked? What's in the story of Samson that's going to prepare me to understand better who John the Baptist is and what John the Baptist's role is in this universe? And even more so, it goes both ways. How is John the Baptist going to help me understand and be more informed about Samson? And so an angel told Samson's mother this in Judges chapter 13 and verse 7. You shall not drink wine or strong drink nor eat any unclean thing, for the boy shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. Uh, and for Samson it was to the day of his death, which is why when his hair was cut, it was the breaking of the vow. And so it wasn't that his hair gave him the strength, it was that his connection to God was broken. It's, so that story from a literary perspective is letting us know more than just his hair got cut. All right, More than just his hair got cut. It's fine if it literally got cut. The Peshat is always true. The black letters on the white page always mean what they say, and they always say what they mean. But there's, it's an onion. There's more to it. It's more to just Delilah cut his hair. He broke his vow. He broke his connection and all of those things that go with being a Nazarite. And that's where his strength came from. His strength came from the Lord. And that's what got severed. And so John is going to have this amazing connection to God because from the womb, he's been set apart in a very unique way. Remember, it was announced on the right side, right? That auspicious north side of the temple. He is going to be a unique child. And he's going to have this extra special connection with the creator of heaven and earth. And as we go along, we'll find out more what that connection is, what that role is uh, in Jesus' life. Uh, so let's, let's keep reading with the spirit and the power of Elijah and learn more about John the Baptist. So let's read together chapter 1 of Luke, verses 15 through 17, and we read together. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's belly. He will cause many children of Israel to return to the Lord their God. 
He will walk before him in the spirit of Elijah and in his power to turn the hearts of fathers upon children and the wayward and the understanding of the righteous and to raise up a people prepared for the Lord. Uh, every time I, I read scripture, I, it, it just excites me. And even there, just reading that, new stuff popped up in me that I didn't even prepare to give you. Um, so I've got to sort through what I'm going to sacrifice to give you that there. Uh, being filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's belly. So John, this Samson-like Nazarite from conception, the angel declares he's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. So we want to go back again to the first century context. So Holy Spirit in Hebrew is Ruach HaKodesh. Ruach R-U-A-C-H. It's another one of those words that kind of means how it, it sounds like what it means. Ruach. Ruach. It's breath. It's spirit. And HaKodesh is um, set apart, holy. So Ruach HaKodesh. In a first century context, in an eastern context, in a Hebraic context, to be filled with the Holy Spirit it does not mean what many 21st century evangelical Christians think it means. For, that, for the context that the Bible was written in, to be filled with the Holy Spirit meant you were a prophet. It meant you were filled with the prophetic spirit. That's Ruach HaKodesh. So to be a prophet does not mean to foretell the future. Some prophets could do that, but all prophets were not foretellers. Right? That's another important distinction here. So John is going to be a prophet, but it doesn't necessarily mean he's going to be telling you about the future. In fact, in Hebrew, do you know what the word for the future means? The word for the future in Hebrew means to look over your shoulder. Now think about that. Hebrew is a concrete language. So why would that language choose to say, look over your shoulder... Look behind your shoulder when they actually are telling you to look to the future. Why would, they, why would they use that phrase, that idiom? Kind of probably already know the answer because we have an idiom similar to it in our time, in our language, right? Those who don't know history are doomed to repeat it. And so all a prophet, when they're foretelling the future... They're actually just correctly, with God's inspiration, interpreting the past. So if I come up here and I say, hey, you know what? You should brush your teeth in the morning, and you should brush your teeth in the evening, and you probably should, you know, probably should give it a floss too. Maybe, you know, rinse it out with some, you know, uh, mouthwash and so forth. It's going to be a good thing for you to do. And you're like, what do you know? I'm my own person, right? And you go a couple of months, and you're like, you know what? I'm doing fine. Nothing's happened to my teeth. I'm still eating. I can still eat corn on the cob. Nothing's fine. So you, you still don't brush. You still don't floss. You still don't do anything with your teeth. Five years down the road, how do you think things are going to be going for you? Right? So if I stand up here then, after having seen that, and I now stand up here and go, I proclaim to you... That if you don't brush your teeth and take good care, don't have good oral hygiene, you're going to lose your teeth. Now, am I predicting the future? Eh, 
sort of, I'm sort of predicting the future, meaning if you really do that and don't exercise oral hygiene, you really will lose your teeth and I'll be proven to be this genius prophet. Or it means I've actually understood the past so well, I can tell you what your future is going to be if you stay on this course. And so one of the main goals of prophecy is to always get people to turn, to shove, which is there in the text, right? He'll be filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's belly, right? It's going to be this Nazarite deeply connected to God, and it's going to cause the children of Israel to return to the Lord. The Hebrew word for return there is shuv, S-H-U-V, shuv. The Hebrew word teshuvah is where we get the word repentance or the Greek metanoia. Repentance in both Hebrew and Greek really doesn't mean repentance like, I'm sorry, please forgive me my sins. It literally means to turn around. It means to do a 180. And so John is sent into this world. He's connected to God on a very high level so that the people of God will do a 180 so that they will shuv and that they will have teshuvah that they will turn, or more specifically in their case, they will return to God. And how will he do that? He will do that by looking over his shoulder. He's filled with the Ruach HaKodesh. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. That is, he can look at the children of Israel in the past, and he will know so detailed what happened and why it happened that he can then look at his current generation and lay it right over his current generation and say, here's the course of action you need to have because if you don't, these are the results. But these are also the results if you shuv, if you teshuvah, if you turn, if you return, if you do a 180 and come back to the Lord. And so there, um, even... Uh, He's, he's, he's being designated or anointed a prophet there. And Jesus even backs this up in Matthew 11, verse 13. He says, for all the prophets in the Torah prophesied until John. And so John is kind of like the final prophet. He is the, the end of the line. Everything was leading up to Jesus. Everything was leading up to this logos, this memra, this deber, this word being made flesh. And John is the final harbinger of it all. And so John is going to inherit all of that, all of that energy. And among all of the prophets, among all of the prophets, the greatest of those prophets, especially in Jewish tradition and in the tradition of Zechariah and so forth, was Elijah. Was Elijah. Elijah was the king of the prophets, right? And so this is who John's going to come in. He's going to have this spirit, this power. He's going to be the Elijah of his generation, okay? And so that would then invoke for us going back and looking into the story of Elijah to find out more about John. But in this enunciation, the angel is alluding to an important messianic prophecy about Elijah. One of those connections is this. Um, Luke 1.17 says, It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children, the disobedient, to the attitude of the righteous, so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Here, there's a direct connection to this scripture. Malachi 3, beginning in verse 23. Behold, I am going... Uh, 
to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. And there's the quote, folks, two of them, the reference to Elijah, but also the turning of the hearts. And so John the Baptist is going to fulfill or fulfill this prophecy that before the, and again, the great and terrible day, again, it's just a way of trying to describe, not terrible in, in our sense, terrible in the King James sense of like awestruck, just too, be, too amazing to put into words, that before that day, the day of the Messiah, before all of that, Elijah is going to come on the scene again. And so what does the angel prophesy about John the Baptist? What does Jesus later confirm about John the Baptist? That this is, if you have the ears to hear, this is Elijah. This is the one who will herald everything and get all of the people and their hearts right to receive the redemption. In order to receive the redemption, right, our hearts and minds have to be ready for it. Right? That's why we often I like to begin by singing, right? Before we hear the word of God, our hearts need to be open for it, needs to be receptive for it, and then God can pour into it. John was going to go and get people's hearts ready to be opened so that Jesus and redemption could be poured into them and into that generation. That's all I got time for today. So we're going to close with a blessing, uh, and then we'll... Headed out with singing. So let's say our blessing. Blessed are you, Lord God, who has given to us the precious gift of the Holy Scriptures. That's the blessing Jesus would have said whenever he finished reading the Bible himself. Let's get on our feet and let's lift our voices.